Well, I want to talk to you tonight about the greatest day of your life. The greatest day of your life. And I'm not talking about your wedding day, as glorious as it was, or your graduation, or your retirement date. You're probably looking forward to that. Or the day when the election campaign ends and all of those nuisance phone calls you've been getting will suddenly come to an end. Or perhaps the day when you make that last mortgage payment. That will be a great day, but it's not the greatest day. Or the day your probation from court finally ends. You finally get off the hook. Or even the day the Braves finally win the World Series. I'm not talking about any of those days. No, I'm talking about the greatest day of your life. The day that Jesus will snatch away his church. If you're a follower of Jesus... That will be your greatest day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us about that day. The Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God will sound. The spirits of those who died in Christ will come with the Lord in the clouds. Their bodies will be, re- will be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. Then we who are alive and remain will also be caught up. We'll be transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be beamed up to heaven. Jesus will snatch us away to live forever with him. It'll be a great day, you can bet. And this is the day that Paul has in view here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Join with me in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. Now notice saving faith is standing faith. It's not enough to simply believe. You must cling to and continue in your faith. Notice Paul says it clearly to us. You are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. You have to hold fast. Reminds me of the Monday night football game in 2008 when Deshaun Jackson of the Eagles, he slipped behind the defense and he caught a 61-yard touchdown pass, a bomb from Donovan McNabb. He glided into the end zone. Deshaun did his favorite touchdown dance. There was only one problem. Jackson had accidentally tossed the ball down on the one-yard line before he crossed the goal line. The Cowboys recovered and negated the score. Hey, it just goes to prove you've got to finish the drill. You can't score without the ball. And likewise with salvation, you've got to cross the goal line with your faith intact. It's not enough to just have faith. We need to finish with faith. You know, people ask me, Sandy, do you believe in eternal security? And my answer is always, absolutely. As long as you're trusting in Jesus, you're eternally secure. Salvation has nothing to do with our works, our good deeds, what we do or don't do. It's all about faith. But Paul is telling us that a bona fide faith perseveres. It endures. Paul says, hold fast that word which I preach to you. Don't fumble away your faith. Now notice verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you first of all, that which I also received. Notice this. The gospel Paul preached wasn't his own invention. He delivered what he had received. He was just the messenger. 
And here in the next few verses, he lays out what he constitutes as the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now here's the first component of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Lots of scriptures predict the cross of Christ. Isaiah 53 gives us a detailed look at Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 is the cross from the eyes of the sufferer himself, the Savior. Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement all paints a picture of the details surrounding the death of our Savior. In fact, the whole Levitical system foreshadowed the cross. Well, here's the first component of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. But then the gospel continues, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And there are several Old Testament passages that predict Jesus' resurrection as well. One of the clearest is Psalm 16, verse 10. It's a Messianic prophecy. It reads, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That predicts the resurrection of Jesus. But where the Old Testament Where does the Old Testament state Jesus will rise from the dead on the third day? Now, here's where we have to delve a little deeper to find this in the Scriptures. In fact, it's mentioned metaphorically at least three times. First is Jonah. You remember Jesus himself said that Jonah was a type of his work upon the cross. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be buried Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, of course, as Jonah was spit up on the beach, Jesus would rise from the dead. Well, the second metaphorical place we find this is the Feast of First Fruits. This was a Jewish feast that occurred three days after Passover. Likewise, Jesus was the first fruits. We'll read about this later. The first person resurrected. And guess when he was resurrected? Three days after his death on Passover, thus fulfilling the the type, the idiom. And then the third place we find this are the three days that elapsed from the time that Abraham committed to sacrifice his son until God delivered Isaac from the dead, from death, on top of Mount Moriah. Metaphorically, you could say Isaac rose on the third day. Well, this is the gospel, that Christ was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. All of this was painted in scripture ahead of time. This is Paul's point. He's pointing out how scripture predicted that Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day. And what scripture predicted, history affirmed. In the next few verses, Paul mentions numerous eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Notice verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, or by Peter. Then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in around 57 A.D. That means it had been just 25 years since Jesus' resurrection. Paul is noting that many of the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrection, that saw Christ personally three days after his crucifixion, alive and kicking, many of these people were still alive on the earth at the time. 
And if the Corinthians doubted the gospel, all they had to do was just track down these folks, check it out for themselves. The eyewitnesses were still around. Understand, God based the gospel, the good news that saves you and me, on objective, historically verifiable events. Jesus stepped into the real world. He occupies a point on the timeline. You know, other religions are tied to metaphysical speculation, to vague promises. But Christianity is built on evidence that you can check out and verify or refute. The enemies of the gospel, they could have shot down Christianity before it ever got off the ground. All they had to do was to present the body of Jesus. That's all they had to do. Would have killed the movement. They didn't (laughs) because he was alive. That's the only reason they did it. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Years after he had ascended to heaven, the risen Christ made a special post-resurrection appearance to Paul. On the road to Damascus, I believe Paul was one of the 12 apostles that he joined the band. He just joined a little too late. Pete Best was the Beatles' original drummer. Did you know that? But when we think of the Beatles, it's never John, Paul, George, and Pete. It's Ringo. Everybody considers Ringo Starr the fourth Beatle. And likewise, Paul was one of the 12 apostles. He was probably the 12th apostle. He just got to the party a little late. He says he was born out of time or due time. And Paul talks about his apostleship. He says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul had experienced by this point his share of persecution, but Paul had dished it out prior. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, a vile, vicious persecutor. He had been a persecutor, now turned preacher and apostle. It's interesting, when Paul wrote this passage to the Corinthians, It was around the year 57 A.D., and here he calls himself the least of the apostles. He'll write to the Ephesians about three years later in 60 A.D., and there he'll call himself the least of all the saints. When he wrote 1 Timothy five years after Ephesians, around 65 A.D., he called himself then the chief of sinners. Notice the progression here. He goes from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the chief of sinners. You know, the longer Paul walked with Jesus, the Lord, the estimation of himself became. This should be true of us. The more we hang out with God, the more conscious we are of his glory and the smaller we become in our own eyes. That should be the progression. Now, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I mean, Paul was the poster child for God's grace. He went from Christianity's chief opponent to its main proponent. Why? Because he got gripped by God's grace. 
Paul received God's offer of free forgiveness, free favor, free blessing, and then he spent the rest of his life finding ways to say thanks. He labored according to the grace that had been given to him. You know, people today take pride in being a self-made man or self-made woman. Paul rejoiced that he was a grace-made man. All that Paul accomplished, he chalked up to grace. I love that. I like to say that I'm hanging on by a single thread, a single thread of God's grace. But you know, when you hold on to that thread, you come to realize it's stronger than a thousand ropes. The grace of God. Therefore, whether it was our they, so we preached and so you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now understand, Greek philosophy and Jewish theology were at odds with each other on this issue of the resurrection and the afterlife. You see, the Greeks taught that the body was the cage of the soul, that man's ultimate triumph was to free himself from his miserable flesh, his fleshly prison. The Jews, on the other hand, they taught resurrection. That man's ultimate triumph wasn't freedom from the body, but transformation of the body. Our victory isn't just merely escaping the flesh. No, the flesh needs a reshaping, a reshaping of the flesh. This is what we need. The Jews believe that God's goal was the elimination of all sin's effects, all sin's consequences. Thus, God would raise our bodies uncorrupted by sin. They believed in the resurrection of the body. The Corinthians now were Christians. They believed in Jesus' resurrection, but many of them still held onto a Greek concept of the afterlife. And so Paul has to set them straight. He says, you're contradicting yourselves If you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, how then can you embrace the resurrection of Jesus' body? Good question. Verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Paul understood and the Corinthians need to understand that without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is a house of cards. It all just falls apart. You see, if Jesus isn't the Lord of life, if he didn't conquer the grave and conquer death, if he's just another dead guy like Buddha and Mohammed and Moses, our faith is vain, futile, empty. He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if indeed the dead do not rise. I mean, Paul is saying that if you deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, then the gospel of the risen Lord is a lie and its preachers are liars. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Everything falls apart if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Jesus had a human body. So to deny the resurrection of the body was to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And if we deny the resurrection of Jesus, Paul's saying, there's no hope for any of us. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead was proof that God had accepted his sacrifice 
that we were forgiven. If, if he doesn't rise from the dead, then we're all still dead in our sins. You know, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we might as well just trash our Bibles, sell off our church buildings, go out, get some Jack Daniels, and just all get drunk together. I mean, if life stops at the grave, then eat, drink, and be merry. You know, just, just spend a little bit of time you got left here as pleasurable as you can. He says, and neither, neither would there be any hope for our loved ones who are already dead if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Notice Paul adds, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can forget about seeing your mom and dad one day or your spouse or your friend. I mean, Paul sums it up. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul is saying that if there's nothing more to this life than just the here and now, then the sacrifices called on to live the Christian life just aren't worth it. Jesus Jesus never rose from the dead. Then the last person with the most toys wins. I mean, that's the philosophy. But you see, that's not what life is about. There is more than the here and now. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and he now dwells in the glory of his Father, his resurrection now paves the way for you and I to follow. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that we too will one day be raised from the dead. You see, the person who presents their body to Jesus, a living sacrifice, will one day see him transform that same dedicated body into a glorious being. We'll be resurrected like Jesus. Notice Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Again, there was an Old Testament feast known as the first fruits. It occurred three days after Passover. The priest would bring out a bundle of wheat before the Lord. The sheaf of wheat was the first of the spring crop, and it represented the rest of the harvest that would follow. Thus, it was called the first fruits, the first fruits of more to come. When the priest would wave it before the Lord, he was basically saying that the whole harvest was being dedicated to the Lord. You're receiving the first, Lord, but more is coming. It was a tithe of the harvest that was being given to God. This is why Paul compares Jesus to the first fruits of the harvest. Jesus was the first of many followers whose bodies will one day follow Jesus and also be resurrected. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. People who are born once share the destiny of their father Adam. They die and their bodies rot. But people who are born again spiritually in Christ are destined to be like Jesus. Our bodies will live forever in God's glory. But there's an order. Jesus was resurrected first at his first coming in 32 AD. Our bodies will experience the same metamorphosis, but it'll happen when he returns. He tells us, verse 24, 
Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that we'll be resurrected at the rapture of the church, at the mass exodus of the church, when Jesus returns in the clouds and snatches us away. This event will be followed by seven years of what the Bible calls great tribulation. During that time, God's wrath will be poured out on this wicked planet. The climactic period of judgment will end when Jesus triumphs over all his enemies at the end of those seven years and establishes his kingdom on the earth. At his first coming, salvation was on Jesus' mind. But at his second coming, domination will be on his mind. Gentle Jesus will crush all his enemies. He'll take the kings and the rulers of this world by the scruff of the neck and he'll drag them into submission. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus tells us that there are actually two resurrections. He says, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the Father's voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There are two resurrections, but these two resurrections occur at least a thousand years apart. Revelation 20 verse 12 tells us that after Jesus reigns over the earth for a millennium of years, Hades will be emptied out. At that time, the lost will also be resurrected, but not to life. Their bodies will be tossed into the lake of fire. Notice verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 20 verse 14 concurs, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Man's arch enemy death will no longer be a threat to those who believe once Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and casts death and Hades into the lake of fire. Next, Paul quotes Psalm 8 verse 6. For Jesus has put all things under his feet. And that includes death. Understand, the ultimate goal of God's eternal plan, he intends for the whole universe to end up in submission to Jesus. That's where we're all headed. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is where we're all headed. This is where history is headed. It's his story. We are all, in the end, going to end up under the domain of Jesus. Some will be under his domain in hell. Some will be under his domain in heaven. But we'll all be in submission to Jesus. That's where we're headed. In verse 27, Paul points out a technicality that ends up teaching us something about the nature of God. He says, but when he says, of course, he had just quoted Psalm chapter 8. So who was the author of Psalm 8? Well, in a sense, it was David. But in a deeper sense, it was the Spirit of God. Thus God says, all things are put under him. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now as the father puts all things under his son, it's the father then is the exception. The father then, the son is not over the father. The father, uh, the son doesn't rule over his father even though the father puts all things under his feet. 
And, and what he's saying here is, is he's saying something about the nature of God, that each of the members of the Trinity have a different role that they play. You know, Jesus assumes he's equal to the Father, but he assumes a submissive role. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, the Father is going to exalt the Son, then in the end, the Son is going to submit to the Father. There are roles that they are going to play out, even though they're all equal. The Godhead exists forever in this ordered equality that we see throughout the Scripture. Now, notice verse, verse 29 is a puzzling passage. He says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, recall the context. Paul is trying to prove to the Corinthians the resurrection of the dead. And so he brings up a pagan practice to make his point. You see, the cults of Paul's day practiced what we would call proxy baptisms. You know, cults do this today as well. Mormons get baptized for deceased family members. Supposedly, their religious observance conveys merits to the dead person. I'm sure Mitt Romney would want to pick up some proxy votes over the next few, few days if possible. But hear ye, hear ye. The New Testament never warrants this idea, not even here. Notice carefully how Paul words this argument. He says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? What will they do? Not what will us, what we do. We don't do this. They do this. What will they do? And why then are they baptized for the dead? He doesn't say us. He says they. They meaning the pagans. Proxy baptisms was never a Christian practice. It was an aberrant, heretical ritual performed by pagans. But the practice did indicate a belief in a physical resurrection. Why go to the trouble of being physically baptized for a friend if you didn't believe that physical body would be resurrected one day? Paul's point to the Corinthians is simply, if even the heretical heathen can see the truth of the resurrection, why can't you spirit-filled believers see that truth? That's what he's saying. Verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I mean, Paul was being persecuted on a daily basis for his belief in the resurrection. If it wasn't true, why was he killing himself trying to preach the risen Christ? He continues, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Remember, Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. And here he says he fought with beasts for the sake of Christ. He's probably referring to evil men, but it's possible that he could have been drugged into the Colosseum and thrown to the lions a time or two. It's possible. And why in the world would Paul risk his life and limb for a lie? I mean, if there is no resurrection, then Paul was wasting his life suffering for a false doctrine. He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's all go down to the liquor store and, and, and let's pick up a pint and douse our sorrows. If all we have to look forward to is rotting in the grave, then life is nothing but a cruel joke. 
Why sacrifice earthly pleasure today for eternal rewards if there's no eternity? If there's no forever, live for right now. That's what Paul's saying. Of course, we do know that there is a forever. We do know that there is a resurrection that one day we'll be with Jesus and we'll give an account of our lives. That's why we're busy serving the Lord. Notice verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I mean, the reason some of the Corinthians had embraced these false ideas, apparently, was because they were hanging out with people who held these false ideas. Hey, guys, hang with the wrong crowd, and you'll eventually get hung. Evil rubs off. Choose your friends wisely. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Don't believe it. What you don't know can hurt you. Reminds me of the man from Bristol, England, who dove headfirst off the local pier. He plunged 25 feet into the ocean. What he didn't know, what he didn't realize was that the tide had just gone out and the water was only 18 inches deep. What he didn't know did have a tremendous impact on his life. Paul is saying we need to wake up. We need to give serious thought to what we believe. Some of us are ignorant of the word of God that lies in our lap. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Learn the knowledge of God so that you won't be put to shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? I mean, some of the Corinthians are going to ask about the mechanics of the resurrection. How does this work? How does this happen? He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Now, Paul is going to resort to nature, to agriculture, to teach some theology. And here's the first principle. Resurrection necessitates death. In other words, before a fruit sprouts, a seed has to be buried. Death always precedes resurrection. He says, in what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. The new body comes only after the old body dies. That's what he's saying. A seed gives up life that becomes the delicious crop. One form of life has to die, and from it, God resurrects a different form of life. This is how resurrection works. The mechanics of the resurrection. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. In other words, God created different types of bodies because there are different environments within life. I mean, a bird needs to be aerodynamic. A fish needs to be aquadynamic. You know, a body that's suitable to one ecosystem may not be adaptable to another environment. Thus, the Creator fits all of life with a body that's suitable for its surroundings. He says there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. 
But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. I mean, just as there are different bodies among the animals and the fish and man, there are different earthly bodies, terrestrial bodies, and there are also different heavenly bodies. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. I mean, they're different heavenly bodies. Every star has its own mass and luminosity and density, its own characteristics. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Remember, resurrection works off of death. New life springs from old life, but only when that old life ceases, death becomes a necessary evil. You see, bodies only change in character after they die. Resurrection kicks in only after death. That's when the body goes from corruptible to incorruptible, from shameful to glorious, from weak to strong, from natural to to spiritual. I'll never forget the young man who gave his life to Jesus on his deathbed, had the opportunity to pray with him and lead him to the Lord. He was in terrible pain. He had cancer. In fact, I baptized him while he was lying in his bed. I remember asking him, Mike, is there anything that I can do for you? (laughs) And he said to me rather matter-of-factly, he said, no, Pastor Sandy, unless you can get me another body. Well, guess what? I can't, but I know somebody who can and who will. For one day, Mike will get his new body, a pain-free, cancer-free body. In fact, everyone who trusts in Jesus will one day receive a brand new body, not a terrestrial, earthly type of body, but a heavenly, glorious type of body. Notice verse 44, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, or Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man, which was Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. See, Adam was earthy. He was made from the dust. He was a dust ball. God breathed into him the breath of life. Jesus, though, is the heavenly man. Adam came first, then Jesus. And this is God's order. Our current bod is from the sod, but our future bod is from God. I believe every teenage driver, I believe every teenager needs to drive a beater before they graduate into a nice ride. This is a firm conviction. I've lived this out in my own life. All, my four, all four of my kids, they drove a jalopy before they ever got something better. You know, a teenager will appreciate a newer model after they drive around in that jalopy for a while. And you know, the same is true for us. Hey, we're all driving a jalopy at the moment. Did you know that? But Jesus is going to give us a brand new model one day, fresh off the lot. 
One day we're going to get bodies with no dents, man. You'll smell the leather. We'll, get, we'll all have that new car smell. We'll have bodies with new car smell. Won't that be cool? During the weeks after his resurrection, Jesus displayed the capabilities of our future bodies. He took his heavenly body on a 40-day test drive, you might say. The risen Christ was unhindered by time and space. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then, boom, he disappeared when they were breaking the bread. When he visited the disciples, he came through the door. He didn't open it. He came through the door, and yet he held out his hands for Thomas to touch. Jesus was still flesh and bone. He even ate fish with the disciples for breakfast. But this flesh and bone body had supernatural capabilities. Here's how I imagine our glorified bodies. Lock your keys in a car. Oh, no biggie. You'll be able to just sort of transport yourself right through the door panel, right into the driver's seat. But I mean, who will need a car? Want to take a jaunt around the world? You'll be able to travel at the speed of desire. That's fast. We're talking Star Trek stuff for sure. We'll all receive a body that is literally out of this world. Verse 48. Now, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. I mean, on earth we get earthy bodies. In heaven, though, we get upgraded to heavenly bodies. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, this I say... Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now, this is why we have to receive a, a new body, because the bodies that we currently possess, those that we receive from Adam, they're not compatible with the inheritance that we've been given in Christ. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, when man walked on the moon... NASA knew that a human body could never survive on the lunar surface. Our bodies aren't fit for lunar life. That's why NASA had to design a life support outfit that would be suited for the moon. Likewise, these mortal bodies that we currently inhabit, they aren't suited to survive in the awesome physical presence of God in His magnificent holiness. If we were to enter into pure holiness wearing a flesh and blood body, I mean, we would, we would fry like wax on the hood of a race car. I mean, we'd have nothing left of us. When we enter God's throne room, we'll have to shed our earth suits that we currently have. and We'll have to suit up in our spiritual bodies. But how will this happen? Verse 51 tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not all of us are going to die. There is a generation of believers on the earth. There is a generation of believers that will not taste death, but that will be raptured at the coming of Christ. We will not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. You know, we used to have this sign hanging in our nursery at uh, over at the other church. It had a we had a little plaque in the nursery that said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
It was funny. It was supposed to be a joke. You get it? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he writes, in a moment, here's how the change will take place. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, will be transformed. You think a transformation from earthy to heavenly, you would think it would take at least hours on the operating table. I mean, even the great physician, you'd think such a transformation would take him a little time. But Jesus plans to give us a new body, not in a blink of an eye. That's pretty fast, a blink of an eye. No, in the twinkle of an eye. That's even faster. He says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Kathy loves to plant bulbs in the springtime. Plants little bulbs all around our yard. These ugly, twisted, gnarly little bulbs. Who would think that that gnarly bulb could sprout and produce such a beautiful flower? And yet this is what happens when Jesus returns for his church. You and I are those ugly, gnarly terrible-looking bulbs that suddenly will sprout into gorgeous flowers. The caterpillars will turn into butterflies. One day we'll shed these cocoons and we'll sprout wings. I love the inscription that appeared on the tombstone. It read, budded on earth to bloom in heaven. That's the destiny of all believers. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. I mean, bodies designed for time and space and earth aren't capable of occupying eternity in heaven. That's why we'll need new bodies designed for the heavenly realm. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Boy, I love this truth. Our Lord Jesus won't be satisfied until he's reversed every trace of sin and every one of its painful consequences. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? You know, Jesus is like the antiseptic my mom used to put on our cuts and scrapes. Bactine. Remember Bactine? It had a, it had a special slogan. It takes the sting out. Death is the only pest that stings before it bites. You know, the worst aspect of death is not that it stops life, but that it spoils life. Death affects us long before we die. It casts a shadow over us, over our good times, knowing that one day they're going to end. The wealthy man doesn't feel quite as rich knowing that he can't take it with him. He's going to leave it in the grave. Fame loses its luster in the face of death. I mean, there are no marquees in the graveyard, only tombstones. Death is a robber. It steals the joys of life. And death terminates relationships. It busts up homes and hearts. It creates missed opportunities. It causes regrets that are sometimes never resolved. Oh, my friend, death stings. Once a little boy, he was allergic to bee stings. He and his dad, they were driving in the car when he saw a bee swarming over the dashboard, and he panicked. He screamed for his father, who was driving, to do something. Well, the dad reached up and he caught the bee in his fist and he just held it there for a few seconds. But then suddenly the dad released the bee back into the air. His son, once again, he came unglued. He said, Dad, what are you trying to do? You know I'm allergic to those bee stings. 
That's when his dad opened his hand and he showed him the stinger stuck in his palm. You see, the dad loved his son and he had allowed the bee to sting him so he would no longer be able to sting the boy. And this is what Jesus has done for you and me. He took the sting of death in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Jesus was separated from his father so that we could live forever with God. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Once and for all, Jesus has defeated death. Today, death is still there like the bee, still flying around in that car. But Jesus has made sure that it can no longer take anything of real and lasting value from us. He has taken the sting out of death for the child of God. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Notice Paul is taunting the grave. He's taunting hell. Hades can no longer hold us. Jesus has sprung the lock. He sprung us all from the prison. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Zach's been teaching through Ecclesiastes. And you know by now, Solomon, he took one look at life under the sun, life in the here and now, and he cried out, vanity, 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 all is vanity. And Paul would have agreed with him if it had not been for the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus lives. Life is worth living. For we can live with him. We too share in his resurrection life. And this means that the here and now does matter. Our lives really do count for eternity. What we're doing right here, right now for the Lord is not in vain. This is why Paul says, be steadfast, never give up. Be immovable, never give in. Always abounding, never give out in the work of the Lord. Never give up, never give in, never give out. What you do for Jesus really does matter. Now chapter 16, we've got to hurry. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. Now, Paul was taking an offering for the Gentile churches, from the Gentile churches, for the first church back in Jerusalem. You remember the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Judea had suffered a, a famine in the previous years, and it had left many of the members hungry and homeless. And Paul felt like that the Gentile Christians owed the original church in Jerusalem a debt of gratitude. In a sense, the Gentile spiritual heritage had begun in Jerusalem. And so he's taking up this offering for them. He continues, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must, do, so must you do also on the first day of the week. In other words, when you gather together, and, and we all know that Christians then and now, we meet on the first day of the week. And that, that's strategic, that's significant. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. That's why we gather together on Sundays. So when the church gathers, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul wants the church to take care of this matter, collect this offering before he visits. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And this was wise. He wanted a representative of the Corinthian church. He wanted a representative of the people who had given the money to escort the money to its destination. Paul was very careful to make sure he was accountable 
for the monies that had been given to God. He says, but if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. For Paul, it was always Deo Valente, or God willing, if the Lord permits. Paul was the church's greatest leader, but he never stopped being a follower of Jesus. If the Lord permits, I'll come and visit you. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost or late spring, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice the adversaries didn't stop Paul from taking advantage of the opportunities. Now, I would imagine that if Christians were less intimidated by our adversaries, we'd find that there were a lot more opportunities to make a difference for Jesus. Verse 10, Now, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was Paul's trusted ally. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now now recall Acts chapter 18. Apollos was the Bible teacher who Aquila and Priscilla had taken aside and he who had they had taught concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was a, a, a humble thing on Apollos' part to receive instruction from Aquila and Priscilla. You know, some teachers stop being teachable once they start teaching. Apollos, though, was not one of those persons. To his credit, he, he was humble. He received their instruction. Now here, Apollos, for some reason, disagrees with Paul. We're not told about the disagreement. But Paul doesn't condemn him for it. Apparently, he just kind of chalks it up to a difference of opinion that occurs sometimes among Christians, even serious and sincere Christians. But he says when he has a convenient time, he'll come too. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. What a challenge to us. Five B's here. Beware, be constant. Be courageous, be bold, be loving in all things. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. This family, Stephanus' family, was the first Christian Corinth, uh, the first Christian convert in Corinth. He says, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Apparently, Stephanus was the first believer there in the region of Achaia or in Corinth, but he, he also became the pastor of the church. He and his family had founded the church and had served the saints. Remember earlier in Paul's letter, he rebuked the Corinthians for rallying around celebrity pastors, for folks saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas. You remember that? Well, notice here, Paul says, forget about the superstar pastors. Support Stephanus. Support support your local leadership. You know, support the faithful pastor 
who labors in the trenches, who's committed to your church, who's going to be there for you when you need prayer, who's going to be there for you when you get sick, who's going to be there to do the to marry off your kids and, and bury your relatives, who's going to be there and live life with you. Remember the, the local pastor, not the slick guy with the novel approach who sweeps into town and impresses everybody before he leaves. No, be loyal to the pastor who you know and that knows you. Verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Now this was the trio of men who had reported back to Paul the problems that were going on in Corinth. And here Paul knows that that they could be branded as tattletales, and so he urges the saints there in Corinth to treat them with respect. He's heading off a problem. Now the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Hey, Aquila and Priscilla, they're at it again. Everywhere you find this consecrated couple in Scripture, you'll find a church meeting in their house. Apparently, Aquila and Priscilla not only open their hearts to the Lord, they open their home to the Lord as well. Prior to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla had lived in Corinth. It was there that Paul had actually met them, and so... Paul is sending their greetings back to their friends. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the point here is whether we greet each other with a kiss or whether we just greet each other with a handshake, it should be warm, it should be sincere, and most importantly, it should be holy. Verse 21, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Now, Paul's custom was to dictate his letters to a stenographer, but then at the end, he would grab the pen and he would sign his signature to authenticate the letter, and that's what he's doing here. My salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then Paul adds an Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, or O Lord, come. That's the word in the Aramaic, Maranatha. Paul closes his letter to the Corinthians, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Maranatha. May the Lord come quickly. And there we have Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Next time, we'll tackle his second letter. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your good work in our hearts tonight, Lord. We love you and praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.